Bonjour et bienvenue to Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon, or as we say in English, welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. Uh, today is, of course, May 7th, 2020, and I mention it because on May 7th, 1951, Bernie Marsden was born. And so uh, here is part two of my Bernie Marsden interview. And I say thank you to Bernie for having uh, stuck around for so long. But I also say happy birthday to uh, Bernie. Now, uh, he is uh, doing the rounds talking about his new book or the, re, uh, the, the reprinting, the re-edition of uh, Where Is My Guitar? An Inside Story of British Rock and Roll. If you haven't checked out the book, I do recommend that you do that. But... Uh, for those of you that are wondering why are we having a part one and a part two, uh, well, I will explain. Uh, at the end of a part one, the uh, phone, the uh, telephony system uh, gave out on us and the interview just uh, and, uh, stopped abruptly. And I thought, hey, why not do a part one and a part two just to make it easier on everybody? So this conversation does pick up midstream, uh, so to speak. If you want a little bit more of the context, head over to part one, which you can find on uh, whatever streaming service you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or, or iHeart or even on my YouTube page. Go find part one. This is part two. Uh, like I said, we pick it up midstream. We recontextualize it just a little bit and then we keep going. But on that, uh, May 7th, 1951, guitar legend Bernie Marsden was born. And with that... Happy birthday, Bernie, and here we go. Here is part two. We are back with a guitarist, Bernie Marsden. He was in the middle of a great, great story, and of course, uh, technology uh, said, yeah, no, not going to hear it, but uh, we're going to try again. Uh, so we were talking about how you were on these five, six, seven Whitesnake albums, and people saw your face and name on a poster, or didn't see your face and name, so... Uh, so before you get started, I'll, I'll just start with this. There is sort of a, a two-version band of Whitesnake. There is sort of the European Whitesnake. Even yep. with the, the Slide It In album, there's two different versions. Whereas, you know, folks in Europe love this bluesy, early 80s thing. And then there's sort of the more, you know, uh, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but sort of the cotton candy American version. It's glitzy, <laughs> it's glamoury, it's got all kinds of keyboards and sweetness to it, which of course has been uh, very, very popular. And of course I love, I mean, you know, the White yeah. Snake 87 album was one of the best. Um, the, the best analogy I always say these days is, is I use Fleetwood Mac. You know, there's Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac and then there's Fleetwood Mac. Right, there, there, there's those two. Okay, so... So, so let me let me try to restart this conversation with the White Snake stuff, and then we'll get back to M three and what happened and all that stuff there. But okay. um, uh, when you get to recording uh, Snake Bite, and then of course Trouble, which is the first full length, were you going it with Neil and John and Mickey and David as we are White Snake? This is a band, or was there a perception from the beginning that? you were just sort of pieces on a chessboard and David would move you. And boy, that sounds horrible, but you know what I mean? Were you a band <laughs> or were you, were you David's project? What was sort of the feeling within you and Mickey and Neil going into this? There was a definite, it was the opposite of what, what it became of, of the chessboard. 
uh, it really was a ban to the point where David didn't even want his name featured on the uh, the, the billing. But we said, no, you're the guy from Deep Purple. We're guys from working, you know, street bands. We've all done, we've all been around, but you're the guy from Deep Purple. So your name has to go on it. So that's why it became David Coverdale's White Snake. The rest of us, we just wanted to write good stuff, but it did turn into like Coverdale, Marsden, and Moody as the creative force until John joined the band. Uh, it was always the three of us putting stuff together and then we'd go in the studio with the rest of the guys and go on the road and do shows. So that was the early time. And, and, it, and it, was a, it was a good time. All right, so uh, last year... You... Yeah, there were no ego problems, really. Uh, we, we had numerous... Well, I say numerous. I think we had three keyboard players very quickly, but that was because John was always in the background. And what are you going to do when you've got John Lord in the background when I knew him really well, David knew him really well, and he comes to a gig and says, oh, very good band. You know, so well, why don't you join, John? You know, so that was it. So that that's that was you know obviously after Pace Ashton Lord and stuff. So it was easy. Uh, the camaraderie was was really good, uh, and that lasted really up until the Saints and Sinners period. Uh, there was a, as I say in the book, in in Where's My Guitar, you know, the 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 beginning of the end really started when we did come and get it at uh, John Lennon's place. Well, it was Ringo Starr's house at the time. Um, Sorry about the name drop there. Um, the, uh, yeah, that's okay. You've played with Zach, so why not? I know, yeah. And, and Ringo, yeah. That's right. And, uh, but John and Ian lived within kind of driving distance to the house, and they didn't stay. So that was the first time that we hadn't creatively put an album together while we were all together. And when I look back, hindsight is a very easy thing and you know, a very useful thing. But when I look back on it now, it, it was really... That was the beginning of the last part of that period when we were really, really together, when we would put an idea down. And, you know, when you have a good idea for a tune and you know Ian Pace is the drummer, you know what you're going to get, you know, and you know you're going to get it and it's going to be better than even you think. Same with John Lord, same with David Coverdale. No matter how we how good the backing tracks were, once we finished in the studio, with especially with Ready and Willing, when you know that David Coverdale is going to be singing on top of all that, you know, you're just looking at each other and smiling. So that was the camaraderie. And that did, did, that did disintegrate uh, towards the, but only really right at the end of Saints and Sinners, uh, when things were really falling apart, literally. And, and, I, and I, as I say in the book, you know, I was the instigator of, of most of the demise in a way, because I looked at David, the two of us in a studio that well, belonged to the Pink Floyd. And we, I looked at him, I said, you know what? we might as well pack this in. I think nobody really cares anymore. And he looked at me with a great sigh of relief on his face saying, are you thinking it as well? So we'd both been thinking the same thing. Unfortunately, that did culminate in the band breaking up. But, you know, it's one of those things you look back on and go, well, I think we went as far as we could anyway. You know, I'm, I'm Slide It In is a different record to me and I'm kind of glad I'm not part of it. Uh, with all due respect, you know, I, you know, my, my, I bowed out with Saints and Sinners with, with Here I Go Again and That'll Do Me kind of thing. But it did seem when I look back now, it could have been one of the great, great, it became a very big band. And, and people say, it doesn't drive you crazy to see White Snake so popular in America in the 90s and stuff. And I said, no, it's, it's like I can listen to the White Snake 87 album or go see them live as if I'm going to see Neil Sean with Journey or Foreigner. Toto with, with Steve and everybody, you know, because they're just a different band now. I, 
the strange thing is, I loved all those bands one, whilst I was part of Whitesnake with David, and he would poo-poo me for saying, why do you listen to all that pop shit? You know, uh, i.e. Toto. And uh, he ends up be, becoming, you know, one of the biggest pop groups in America, which I found, I, I always found, you know, quietly uh, ironic. And, and you can never go wrong with uh, Steve Lukather. He's one, one of the greatest. <laughs> um, all right, so... so one, of my, one of my best friends, one of my best friends. Oh, he, he is so incredibly yeah. nice. Uh, yeah. And I sort of have the same kind of story with him that I do with Joe. He was following me on Twitter, and, and then the next thing we did an interview. Anyway, <laughs> it's just, uh, that Twitter has been, a, has been a boon for me. But okay, uh, last yeah. year at the Steelhouse Festival Away Day, you yeah. performed Ready and Willing uh, full. You did a, a, an album show. Uh, yeah. When you look back at your time with White Snake, I'm assuming by the fact that that's the one you chose to do in full, that's the one that stands out. So, so what makes Ready and Willing so special to you? And is that sort of the crown jewel in your White Snake career? I think the reason I'm so close to it is because of a. It was uh, Ian's first record. Um. I think we've we've kind of reached a very high level of songwriting and performance. And then it became the breakthrough uh, album that um, put us in the charts and put us into the national, you know, eye eye level, really. We'd done good shows before that, but Ready and Willing put us into, I think it went in at number three or something in the charts. And suddenly we were doing you know, whole sellout European tours and stuff. Then we toured with ACDC at the end of it. And uh, that was all, that was pretty good as well. So that helped in Europe. That that broke us very big in Europe. So I always look back at Ready and Willing with, with great love. And I think it's a really good, strong rock blues album. So I thought it'd be a good one to do in its entirety. And I have to tell you, we were in a, this place that holds, uh, I think, about 1,500 people in Cardiff and uh, the tram shed, which was a fantastic evening. And my daughters were there with a few friends. And when we began, uh, my youngest daughter went to the sound desk to say, is there something wrong with the sound? And what it was, she had never experienced 1,500 people singing every word of every song before at one of her dad's concerts. And, and, and it's remarkable. The volume in the room was, was fantastic. And it, they thought it was a distortion of the PA system. But it wasn't. It was the people enjoying themselves. If we get to have shows again, is, is that something you'd like to do more of and maybe consider doing Love Hunter and, and some of the other ones and perform them? Why not? Yeah, yeah. I think I mean, it, we, did, we did the album literally track, track, to, track one to the, track, the last track. And then we did a couple of, we did Ain't No Love and we did a few other things. And the feeling in the room, Mitch, was just just unbelievable. And uh, was 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 so. The answer to that is absolutely yes. I, you know, and with with what else is going on, you know, lit, literally all over the world at the moment. I, I think I can't think of anything better than to go out and play the music that people want to hear, and uh, people to enjoy themselves in, you know, arm in arm kind of thing. And I hope that comes to pass. Maybe not this year, but maybe in a year's time, you know. Who knows? You know, we're not clever enough. We, we we wait for the academics to sort that out, don't we? Yeah, we do. And and hopefully we'll we'll get back to uh, to shows and stuff. There there will be some changes, but whatever. It's better yeah. than nothing. Um, yeah. So I'm going to ask you two things about Ready and Willing. Of course, you have a Fool for Your Loving, which 
to me, I think the original versions are the better versions because they're, there's more sort of heart and soul in them, if I can express it that way. Yeah, I, um, I think so, yeah. How do you that. take the, the remakes, do, do you look at that as a compliment to the songwriting and to the, to, to the performance and say, hey, David really loves these songs, that he's going to do them again? Or do you take it as, what, we weren't good enough, so now you have to... How, how do you sort of take that, you know, because there are, there are two ways. I, I see you as being a positive person and see it more as a compliment, yeah. but how do you sort of... And then, and what do you think of the, I guess, the Steve Vai version? I, I listen to it as a, as a good modern rock record. And, you know, Steve, Steve is a fantastic guitar player. You know, people say, oh, did you see the video, this ridiculous guitar solo? I said, well, really, what, you know, like he's praying to the guitar. And I, I, I hadn't seen it at that point. And, you know, and I don't think, I mean, that's, that's performance. You know, that's people doing a, you know, if, as far as I know, the director of that video said, Steve, I want you to do this, you know. And, you know, but I think he did say to me once, you know, um, I think he sort of smiled at me once at a festival in Germany and said, sorry about the solo, you know, that kind of thing, you know. But it, it, there's nothing about it, it makes you laugh, you know, and then I could, I respect him so much as a guitar player. I think that David were, you know, or, or somebody within the record companies at the time has just said, look, there's some fantastic songs in this back catalog, you know, that in America people have never heard. And Fool for Your Loving was, was obviously, you know, the one to, to go for. And then the, the other one, as we all know, uh, which has become pretty anthemic. So, uh, I, I know that I think it was one of the people at, Guessing records who had heard here I go again on on Saints and Sinners and said sort this one out you know let's rearrange this and put it into 1980s you know and uh, you have a you have a, a number one record which was absolutely correct so I I can listen to that you know people say well of course you can because you know the X factor of of cash is you know important which of course it is but you know a, a good song is still a good song whether it sells a hundred. Or whether it sells a million, you know, I would, you know, they wanted to write another one. I said, I wish it was that easy, you know, but uh, if only, uh, if only, yeah, you know, people can say, you know, uh, people go, oh, you, you know, you must have been lucky to have this. I don't think luck comes into it, you know. There's, you know, a good song is a good song, and David and I wrote that song with, you know, and we recorded it the best way we thought it could at the time, and I'm sure that when they re- remade it, they did it the best way they thought they could then. And as such, you know, millions and millions of people went out and bought it. So I'm not going to make any judgment either way on that. It's, uh, it, it continues to be popular. People know me for it, and I can play it, just me and an acoustic guitar. And, you know, people get very teary-eyed sometimes. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised. All right, so so let's, um, I don't know how much more time you have, but I'll ask you this. Uh, one of no, the... I'm good. I'm... Oh, good, because I, I, I've got I've got a few. Um, yeah. one of the players, if you want, in the, the whole making of those White Snakes albums was, of course, producer Martin Birch. You used yeah. him all the way through. Um, some might say that's a good thing. Some might say, well, sometimes you got to change the ears. I personally think it's a great thing. What did he bring to the band? Because yes, you're playing guitar and yes, David's singing, but ultimately it's the team. And what did he bring to the team? Martin Birch was the seventh member of Whitesnake. Simple as that. And don't forget that John, John and Ian and David had worked, worked with Martin all through the Purple era. David only knew Martin Birch as a producer from the day he joined Deep Purple. So it was, it was a slam dunk that, that Martin would be involved in working with the, the new lineup, the new band, and 
you know, because of the connection between myself and uh, Pace Ashton Lord, him with David with Deep Purple. So when we kind of called up together and said, you know, get involved in this. And he was the guy that we all had total respect for because of his back catalogue. And I could not get enough of Martin. How did Peter Green do this with Free Remake? How did Peter do this? Is this like Peter would do kind of thing? To the point where he would say, uh, what do you, you know, I'd do a solo and he'd say, uh, do you think Peter would have played that? Which is his way of saying far too many notes. You know? And we just understood each other. And the fact that Martin wasn't involved with Saints and Sinners, I think is connected to the, to, to the demise of, of that lineup. Because Martin had gone by then because the management uh, wouldn't come up with a deal that suited him and his people. And so he was off uh, working with some unknown little band called, what they called? Oh, yeah, Iron Maiden. <laughs> and, you know, I don't blame him for going. The deal was the deal. He'd, he'd worked with Rainbow as well. And his input on stuff is just so important. Uh, to, well, Don't Break My Heart Again is a good example. Um the, the guitar solo on Don't Break My Heart Again is me running through to get a sound. And I finished the solo and he said, thank you very much. There you go. See you later. Right. Yeah. It's funny, and, by and the way, got, yeah. every time you mention yeah. one of these songs, I start singing it in my head. It's very distracting. It's, it's <laughs> distracting. Uh, okay. I mean, so, he, let, he have another six goes at doing a solo on Don't Break My Heart Again. And, and he just give me that look of his, which was fantastic, and go, back to number one? And I go, yeah, okay. And that was it. So that that's how important he was, you know, and uh, that's why he did my solo album with me, and and I just um, I think we just missed him as that seventh member when, even though the guy that we had was was very competent and you know easy to work with, but he wasn't Martin, and you know the the sessions at uh, Tittenhurst Park, you know, with Martin for for come and get it, and for we well we mixed a lot of the live album at uh, at uh, Tittenhurst as well, you know. It, the, the moment it could only be me and Martin in the studio, or David and Martin, or whatever. But it was still White Snake, you know. There was that feeling. It was, uh, yeah. He was a very, very important part of it, and you know, a wonderful producer. And uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that maybe if we are too old, we'll, we'll get together to do something again at one point. Yeah, that, well, that would be great. Uh, um, talk, talk to me then, because uh, you mentioned that uh, he, he would give you that look when he heard what he wanted to hear. Uh, yeah. Talk to me about record making back then compared to now. Now we spend so much time with second guessing and auto tuning and flying in and flying out and blah, 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 you know, pro tooling <laughs> this and pro tooling that. You look at the early Sabbath, you look at the early White Snake, you look at the early whatevers. They, they showed up to the studio and whatever, nine hours later, they had an album. Um, yeah. yeah. How do you sort of look at it now? Is technology in 2020 your friend when recording, or have we just gotten to the point where we've taken out? And I've said it before: the heart and soul. Have we have we sanitized music too much? I, I don't think so. You know, I think if in 1975 we could have had the quality and all the uh, versatility of digital recording, I think we'd have all taken it. It's only because you, it's like the guys were working, you know, the Beatles had to work two track and then the magic of four track. Well, by the time I, I began recording, it was 16 track. Well, maybe eight, but 16. And then it went, it went to 24. And it was, you know, so there's no difference really. I think you work with what you have, but the big difference is there's six people in the studio working together with the producer or the engineer. And I think some of that has lost its focus. 
purely because you don't have to be there. I mean, I'm in and out of the studio all the time now, like with Joe last last year, you know, well, this year in January, it seemed possible that Joe and I were still working on his album in January. Seems like five years ago at the moment. But um, we worked in, in Abbey Road, digital and analog. And it sounds great, you know, and I've heard some of the stuff already, which is absolutely amazing. And I don't, I think anything that makes a sound of a record better is good. Whether it's better than Ready and William in sound quality or not, well, then a technical boffin will have to tell you the difference. And I know that the, the records, if, uh, when I made an album called Shine about four or five years ago. Yes, with um, uh, a version of Trouble on it with David singing. The Trouble, like, yeah. And we cut that onto vinyl at Abbey Road. And if I play that vinyl on my system here, the vinyl copy, that sounds like the record I made in Abbey Road. The CD is great. It's very versatile. It's, obviously, you can put it in your car or take it anywhere with you. Download, you can take anything like that. But the record I made is when you put like a stylus on those grooves. Uh, maybe I'm probably nostalgic, old-fashioned or whatever. But to me, when I put that on and play it, you know, not ever so loud, but nice and solid, that's the record that I can remember making at Abbey Road. And I think that's important. I think Joe's captures some of that with the, with the record that, that, that we did, uh, that we've written together this, this year. This year. So, but, but I'm also talking about our sort of 2020 desire to make everything perfect. You look back at the early Whitesnake and the early Sabbath, and sometimes the drummer's going too fast, and sometimes the guitarist hits a bone yep. note, and sometimes the vocal's a little, you know, whatever. It's, but that made it magical. Have we gone too far in terms of trying to make everything perfect, uh, perfectly yeah, in pitch? Yeah, I think, I, I, think there, I would agree with you to, you know, to, to quite, quite a large aspect on that. I, I mean, I, I I know there's stuff on some of them. I mean, only I know, or, or we the ones that were there at the moment, there's certain parts where you go, oh, well, we could have done that again. But if we'd have done that again, we would have lost the 90% that was right. And I think sometimes, and that's where, the, going back again to Martin Birch, that's where the producer comes in and says, no, you've got it. That's the track. We're going to work on that, you know. And if, unless it was blatantly wrong, obviously, uh, it, it always worked out. And um the fact that you can do, I mean, I, I, I use the, the digital age, obviously, because when I record these days and if I like a section, we'll say, well, let, let's repeat that section and just cut it in from, you know, bar 64 to bar 94, whatever. But I don't really know how to do it. That's the engineer's job, you know. And if I then go and sing another verse, I say, can I do another verse there? And they go, yeah. Well, how do I do that? So, well, we just, go, we just cut and paste this. Oh, I go. Well, not so much now, but that was a few years ago. But it, it still fascinates me, to be honest with you. It does to me, too. And and uh, a good friend of mine is Alan Niven, and here's my name drop for the day, manager of Guns N' Roses. <laughs> and he always yeah. says to me, there is a perfection in the imperfection. And it's like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, there I, is. I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. yeah. That's, that, that's very good word. It's so so eloquently put. Now uh, we've mentioned a whole bunch of stuff, so we'll we'll look at the uh, Malice in Wonderland. We'll we'll look at all that stuff. Um, we know the story. It's written in the book and Classic Rock and the other websites talked about from your book about how the White Snake ended and so on and so forth. What's not as apparent is to me at least is. How did sort of you decide, because you, you do Malice in Wonderland in 77, mm. and then after that you're going into Whitesnake. How did that 
become, how did you join Whitesnake? Was it just a progression of being friends with David and eventually it was like, all right, let's get on with it? Or did you have to audition? Was there, hey, by the way, we should form a band. You know, how did, <laughs> how did it sort of become? You know, how did you become we, Whitesnake? Well, while we were recording Malice in Wonderland, David lived about an hour from Munich at the studio. So while we were there, we, and we were there for about four months, he came to see John and Ian to say hi. And I suspect now, looking back, to have a nose around to see what they were doing, really. But that's when we met. We sat down together, had a, you know, had a cup of tea together or whatever, a beer or whatever it was. And we kind of understood each other pretty much straight off. You know, he had been the new boy in Deep Purple. I was the unknown factor of Pace Ashton Lord. Uh, he didn't have any brothers or sisters. Neither do I. Uh, we both like the same people, we're the same age. We, you know, we grew up with the the Eric Clapton's, the Peter Greens, the John Males, and we got kind of got along in a very quick uh, period of time, you know. But that was only in one afternoon on, in the sunshine of uh, Munich. Then the Pace Asher Lord album came out, and he heard. Obviously, he got a copy of that, and he heard me as a kind of a slick session player. Okay. So fast forward about six months, Pace National Lord has come to a, an end. Uh, I was managed within the Deep Purple office and people were talking this, talking that. He came and I said, oh, David Coverdale's coming uh, over to London. You should meet up. And I said, yeah, that'd be nice. But that night I went to see a great English, a Scottish singer called Frankie Miller. And Mickey Moody was playing guitar with Frank, for Frankie Miller at the time. So I went to the, the Rainbow in London, a legendary gig, and I walked into the foyer to pick up my passes, and I literally bumped into David, who was there to see the gig, to see Mickey. And he said, uh, oh, hello, how are you? Da, 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 nice to see you. And then he said, I hear that, and he called it Place Haddock and Cod, which is uh, three fish and chip shop items, right? Right. Well... He said, I hear that Place Haddock and Cod has ended. And I said, yeah, that's true. That's, that, that's true. And then he said, I also hear, he said that you might be joining Macca's band. So that's when that whole thing with, with Wings was going on. And I said, well, that was a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago and nothing's really happening. And he said, well, uh, I'm putting a band together. He said, why don't you come down tomorrow? I'd like your input on the drummer and bass player situation because you've worked with Ian and Cozy. I said, okay, fine. And as I walked away, he went one way to the gig, I went to another. He said, bring your guitar. The next day, this drummer and bass player, who, who I have no idea who they were, were playing. Mickey was there. I plugged in with my guitar into another amplifier and we started to play and we just jammed in a kind of Allman Brothers style. The two of us, and bear in mind, Mickey and I had never played together before. And we played for about what seemed like, you know, 15 minutes, maybe half an hour. And what we didn't realize that David had walked in the door at the other end of the rehearsal room. And when we finished playing, just basically to have a break, we heard this uh, applause, this clapping coming from the other end of the room. And he came over to me and he said, he ignored the other guys. He said, can I have a word with you? And I said, yeah. He said, I had no idea you played the guitar like this. So I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I've just got the Pace Ashton Lord album. And, you know, it sounds like, you know, you're a, like a, 
a, a seasoned session player. That's what I thought you did. I said, no. I said, that's the exact opposite of what it is. He said, well, I know that now. I've just been listening to you play for 15 minutes. And then he said, look, I don't know what Mac has offered you. I probably can't make match his offer, but I would love you to be part of this new band. And I said, well, you can match the offer because there is no offer. So that's how it began. That's a that's a great story. So, uh, it, well, it turned out well. Now, just real quick on, on that, we um, uh, we mentioned, of course, uh, Tony Ashton, and uh, I'm just going to throw this out for fans. If you can track down an album called Tony and Ashton and Friends live at Abbey Road 2000, uh, Company oh. of Snakes do a few songs on there. The Here I Go Again, and, and all this. They just sound great. That is such a great little collector's item. So for people, you know, instead of collecting guitars, if you're collecting CDs, go get this <laughs> album. It, it, it's, it's, it's a bit tough to find, but it's on the internet, eBay and Discogs and all those places. But the, what a great... DVD is... Yeah, that's right. There's a DVD. What a great evening that was. I mean... Yeah, it was special because Tony, bless him, was pretty ill by then. And we, you know, everybody kind of knew what was going to happen, but... We had this great evening, and uh, and uh, Jeff Emmerich engineered the whole thing, the, the Beatles guy. Yep. And uh, he, he rec- when we recorded that, that version of John and I doing Here I Go Again, just the two of us, that was done because there was a technical breakdown. Uh, something, so we just had to do something at the time. So that we were kind of thrown in. Well, that's be- become very, very popular on the internet. And then Jeff Emery, I went in to say, that's one of the sweetest things I've ever heard. He said, And I only then found out that it was Jeff Emery in the control room. <laughs> so these things that go on, I don't think that's even in the book, actually. So yeah. that was a special night. You know, that was a night to, you know, to create some kind of security for Tony for, for what turned out to be not, not very long. Yeah, rest is, uh, rest is soul, but... Uh, yeah. That, uh, you that, have to read the book. People have to read the book for Tony, don't they? Yeah, they do. And but that that <laughs> just that version though, and that that entire CD is is magical. There's there's a sense of well, I don't even know. There's it's just it's, there's just a magic to it. You you can tell that there was a love in that room, and yeah. it it just it comes. You know, when you have the passion in you, the music. Yeah. The, you know, you there's intangibles in music that people always talk there was about. A lot and, of- there were a lot of very famous people at that gig, you know, uh, who had all contributed to the, you know, to the the, the input of it. And uh, John Entwistle was there, and for one person, you know. But when the five of us got on stage to play for the first time in all those years with Robert Hart singing, there was an audible sort of uh, gr- sort of gr- uh, sigh in the room, and then the warmth as we started to play those White Snake classic tunes. It was tangible. It was, um, you know, you could really feel the love in the room for the music. And I'm just sorry that David wasn't there, really. It, it, I mean, Robert Hart, you know, he's a good friend of mine. He did a, did a good job and everything. But to have the rest of us there with him singing would have been, well, it wouldn't have been just the icing on the cake. But of course, that, that's never been going to be able to happen now because, uh, because John's gone. Well, it's, it's yeah. Anyway, anyway for, for collectors. Uh, go find yeah. that. It, it, it's really uh, a great, great piece it's to have. It's called Endangered Species, isn't it? Uh, well, there's yeah. different versions running around, but there is one just called oh, Live at Abbey Road 2000. Oh, okay. So, uh, okay. But at this point, it's hard to differentiate what is the official release and what's become sort of yeah. people knocking it yeah. off and stuff. But, uh, all right, you yeah. know, okay, so we, we, we've, we've danced around Here I Go Again. So, so let me ask you this. Uh, it is the song. 
it is the one that you uh, perform. Uh, if you look at the uh, Moody Marsden stuff, the little the live album stuff, it comes up over and over yeah. again. Uh, I do want to ask you about the lyric, though. We all know that uh, Hobo became Drifter. Um, yeah. What I find interesting, though, is in concert now, uh, you've started saying Drifter instead of Hobo, <laughs> uh, right? Is that does that is that a way of saying this is a better lyric? Is that or is that just saying this is the more popular version? Talk to me about you actually taking on the new version or the new lyrical content. I'll be absolutely straight with you. Sometimes I, sometimes I do it without even thinking. And sometimes I do it purposely. Well, each of the two choruses, I sing Hobo on one and Drifter on the other. And it's merely because uh, the, the, the Hobo version is the original and that gets a cheer, especially in the UK. And if I do the other one, that also gets a cheer because it's a recognition of the success of that version. So that's the reason why. And it was changed by the record company in America. Uh, it was nothing to do with me. Uh, no, nobody asked me. Just suddenly I, I hear the record and it's, it's like, like like a hobo. No, like a drifter. I was born to walk alone, which makes sense. Hobo in England is, is what a drifter is. As well, you probably in Canada too, we had a great TV show yeah. called the Little Littlest the Littlest Hobo about a Littlest Hobo, yeah, a yeah, German yeah. shepherd running. <laughs> what a concept for a yeah, show! Well, <laughs> it was politically deemed that that hobo uh, rhymed, yeah, rhymed with, rhymed with, yeah. rhymed with, right? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, which right. listen, you know, contextually in nineteen eighty six, eighty seven, I suppose, you know, into in twenty twenty, we might say really. In 1987, really? you probably go, okay, I, I get it. Was it right? Probably not, but yeah, I get it. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, it, 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 you know, it's important, or is it important? You know, in this, especially in the light of you know this, this, the first three months, four months of this year. You know, it's one of those things. Say, well, you know, like you say, well, it, it, it makes me laugh. I smile because it makes me smile on stage if I do it either way. Because you can see the anticipation, especially when I'm in the room. You say we've been at four, five hundred people. They're thinking, what's he going to sing? And uh, if I do the one around the wrong way, if I sing Drifter first, they say, oh, he's forgotten, and I do Hobo the second time. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, a bit of a little silly uh, game, in a way. Well, here's, here's how you solve this. You uh, start every set with Here I Go Again, the 82 version, and you, in the encores, you finish with the 87 version, and everybody yeah. wins. Everybody wins. Yeah. Uh, listen, yeah. I could do this forever, so I'll, I'll start winding down. I'll ask a, a couple more okay. questions, and then we'll we will uh, consider a part two. But uh, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. By the way, this this has been uh, spectacular for me. But okay, we we we've we've touched upon the fact that we and we said it before. There's sort of the UK version, and where was the for the lack of a better word, the disconnect with the American audiences in the early 80s. You know, Ozzy Osbourne is coming over with Randy and, and he's doing great stuff. Black Sabbath with Dio, they're coming over, they're doing great stuff. Def Leppard come over, Pyromania, great stuff. Why was Whitesnake not getting that reception from the American audience? Why did it sort of take, you know, the, 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 the cotton candy? Why, why were you not connecting with American audiences? Well, in Where's My Guitar, I go into it, and I don't, I, I'm not, I don't 
want to point fingers or of blame because there's always either you know looking at somebody to blame. But I will say there's always a but, isn't there? You know, we were signed to what we thought was Atlantic Records in America, and we became very excited, and that was really cool. When we got the deal done with Ready and Willing, and the record came out, we were with a company called Mirage, which was a subsidiary of Atlantic Records, and didn't have the clout and the power to work the record. So we were in the States. If you, so then if you tie that up with very poor management and rooting on tours where we sh- maybe should... We had a great time. We did a tour with Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, which David called the heavy metal sandwich because we were on in the middle. And then we did a t- another tour with Jethro Tull. Totally unsuitable. But we went down really well. And I get emails on a daily basis from people in North America who say they were there, man, and this was one of the greatest gigs I ever saw. We were like a bunch of, you know, 25, six-year-old pirates on the road. And it shows because we, we just really... But the thing is, what people don't realize, at the time, we were headlining all over Europe and Japan. So being in America and playing first or second to somebody, there's nothing wrong with that at all. We have, we've never had a problem with that. But to the audience, that would go, well, who are these guys? And nobody ever mentioned that three of the guys from Y State were from Deep Purple. So that wasn't used. And so that just shows you how poor our management was at the time to not instill into the record label. Well, you've got to use this fact that John Lordy and Pace and David Coverdale are going to be opening up in Norman, Oklahoma uh, for uh, Jethro Tull. But that never happened. And so we were spending, Ian Pace being more financially astute than the rest of us, said, do you realize that all the money we made in Japan, we've just burned on the first four weeks of this American tour. This, this is crazy. So by the time we got, I think, to Buffalo, and we did um, a show there, we were only a couple of hours or whatever to get back to New York, and we said, you know what? Let's go home. We came home, and then we played to uh, something like 125,000 people with ACDC at the Donington Park Festival. So everything was kind of back to normal. So that's the reason why I put down the fact that those songs never reached the American audiences the first time around. And after the Jethro Tull tour of the, and the Armaid, we just didn't bother going back to America anymore. Yeah, it, it's, um, a, it's amazing because you, you, if David hadn't done that 87 album, White Snake yeah. would have been yeah. essentially the next status quo, you know, the, the yes, band. And, I was just about to say, we were like, we, we kind of had the experience of status quo doing the same thing in the previous five years, being massive in Europe. But, but trying and trying and trying to break America without the backup support of a te- you know a really good team behind the band, and we were never you know socially aware enough for whatever obviously like these days. But, but you just did depend on your local guys, you know your local radio stuff, and we'd be everywhere. And suddenly somebody would come and say, "Is John Lord really here?" And they say, "Yeah." So well, could we talk to him? But by then we were moving on to the next town the next day. So it was a was a very poor situation. And looking back on it, it was an absolutely crazy situation. But of course, at the time, until Ian, you know, sort of said, look, lads, you know, I've just worked this out. We've, we've just spent XXX of all the money that we had coming to us. Little did we know we didn't really have any money coming to us. But that's another story. That's another but, story. Uh, and, that's another story. But that and, was the reason why we, we never broke in America. Uh, we were certainly made for America. If we'd have toured with ACDC in America or with the Allman Brothers band, 
I think uh, we'll be talking very much differently. Very differently. And, point. you know, yeah. I, I, I'm assuming you, you must know the band Thunder from the UK and, and the singer Danny yep. Bowes. Yep. I asked yep. him the same question, and he said, you know what? We stuck to our guns with our British management, our UK management. We probably should have gotten US managers. Yep. And it sounds yep. to me as though you probably should have done the same thing and gotten a, a U.S. team and not try to... Except the fact was we had a deal with the guys that we had here in the U.K. that was immovable. And so they would rather have broken... Well, they did, in fact, in, in fact break up the band rather than let it go to anybody else. That's effectively what David had to do. And I don't blame him for that, you know, because... Uh, you know, after that, it became a situation where, where he uh, wanted to obviously continue his, you know, his path. And unfortunately, that didn't include me and it didn't include Neil Murray and it didn't include. But I think we had the situation going. I talked, uh, Adrian Smith is a good friend of mine you know, from Maiden. And um, and I talk a lot to, uh, to Phil Collin and when we meet up at gigs. And they all say the same thing. They just go, man... Why was Whitesnake never bigger with you in America? And I just go, man, don't, don't even go there. You know, if we'd have had Iron Maiden's management even at the time, because they were hip to doing stuff with them, you know, EMI didn't get behind us because we weren't signed to EMI in America. We were signed outside. It was just a European deal. And uh, that's the story, really. It's, it's, it's kind of a sad story, but how can it be sad when you work out that Whitesnake is still a filling stadiums today? So yeah. I can only talk by Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac angle. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And, and, you know, there, there's a lot of bands like that. You look at Tigers of Pantang, they had the same thing. They were doing great. They had it anyway. Um, yeah. I, 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 let me see. I'll look. All right. I'll, I'll wrap up on this. We did talk about the, uh, the Paul McCartney, that story for me, uh, I know you touch about it in the book, but I, I get confused because when you look online, it says Bernie was fired. And you go, well, but he never joined. And, and then you go, <laughs> and then you read other parts where you go, well, he never joined. So so what was that like? And let's call it a flirtation if you want. What, what was that flirtation with the Paul McCartney band like? Because obviously at that time... Oh, I, I could... We can we can tidy that up. I, 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 you can't be fired from something that you a were never part of, and and b I called their office up to say, look, thank you for considering me, but you have to unconsider me now because I'm forming a band with a guy from Deep Purple. So it was a, it was just one of those things, you know. And as I've always stated, you know, the chances are well, I is, is that Paul never even knew I was involved. It was only because Howie Casey had recommended me to the management there to replace Jimmy McCulloch, who was a good friend of mine. You know, and they said, we've got just a guy. He sings, he writes, or whatever. He sings, he's a good player. He's a great, he can do this. He has no problems. You know, he's a nice enough guy. And he'd be perfect for the band. And so I got this call from their office to go and see them. I had two meetings in uh, MPL. And each one was saying, well, look, it's not an audition. You know, we'd do it, why don't just get together with the band and the, with Paul and the guys and see how it goes. I said, yeah, that's great. You know? And so one week went by, then another week, then another month. And by that time was when we were in the rainbow situation. So I, and David said, I'd like, I said, well, look, this is going to be great. At the time, Mullican Tire was number one in the charts over here, which wasn't exactly my uh, Howling Wolf style of music. And uh, I just thought, in fact, my girlfriend, who's now my wife of, of 40 years, said, uh, 
looked at the Malakintar video and she said, you're not going to do that, are you? <laughs> and I said, no, I don't think so. So I just called them up on the Monday or whatever it was and said, you know, thanks for the, you know, for the potential of, the, of, of, of being part of this. But I have to tell you now that I'm going to be joining a band, forming a band with the guy from Deep Purple. So, you know, I would, I, I would, in a way, in a CV, I'd be, I could say, well, well, at least I was fired by Paul McCartney. I can't even say that. I know. <laughs> well, we could. Nobody has to so check. That, that's, the, that's the whole story there. Nick. So, you know, in, in a way, I always say it's kind of a non-story because it, no, nothing really happened apart from the fact that I, I had meetings in their offices. I, I was called up specifically to do it. And I just had to say, well, no, I can't, you know, I can't do it because I'm, I've got a new band going on. And that band turned out to be Weinstein. So it, it looks like I was a genius. Well, uh, I, I would certainly agree. And, uh, <laughs> and and speaking of genius, I, I will throw this out for the collectors as well. If you're looking for another good album, find Bernie Marsden and his acoustic band. Go, uh, the, the album's called Going to My Hometown. That is a roaring yeah. good time. Uh, the, that is, uh, uh, it just sounds like you're, you're, you're in a pub with your friends and just, laying yeah. it on the line it's it's a great fun thing uh listen i i could go on forever i've got so many more things we 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 didn't cover that ufo a, a, that is a good one because that was recorded in a very small converted church with about 150 people it really is it very very, very uh, intimate oh it's yeah. great and and you can hear that on the recording it just it yeah it just sounds like a good time i mean i, I don't want to get too uh you know uh cerebral on it but it just sounds like a good time uh listen yeah. we, there's so much to cover we we didn't cover ufo we i did want to ask okay. a little bit about the whole tony martin thing but i i don't want to leave this on on um uh, you know i want to leave this on a positive note so let us uh, let us leave it at that and let's consider a a, a part two at some point because there, there's yeah you see well, let's let, let, let's do another one and then we'll do something when when joe's album comes out if you like Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and and by the way, that's why at the beginning I said it's hard to know where to go with the interview because there's just so much. I mean, I I think that I'll just have to go through a calendar and go, okay, April twenty sixth, nineteen forty two. What we you know, <laughs> well, you know, one thing at a time. But uh, anyway, thank you, sir. And uh, for the record, the uh, the M three record, which uh, the live thing, I think it's great. Yeah. I think it just sounds great. I I, I know that it, it didn't last long and so on and so forth, yeah. but it does sound great. And to hear sort of the voice of Black Sabbath doing an evening of Whitesnake is, is trippy, man. It's, it's a real trip. <laughs> uh, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right, great. Let me turn this off. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch LaFon, and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore LaFon. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtracks.com slash Mitch.